I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. listeners. Um, so this this episode is focused on technology and change, and I'm really excited about our next guest speaker, Nels Long, because he comes from an interesting practice. Um, and I actually met him while I was trying to find speakers for the Practice Innovation Lab. And I was looking for people that were practicing differently. And you both have a few things in common, like you both went to Cyarch. Yeah, it was a um, Nels graduated after me. I don't actually think we had very much official. I don't think we had any overlap, to be fair. But the interesting evolution of Cyarc is that it brought Nels to Roto Architects. So Nels Nels works for Michael Rotundi, who runs Roto Architects. He's also one of the original co-founders of Cyarc and actually served as um, for 10 years as a second director of Cyarc from 1987 to 1997. Nels is the one of the co-founders of a spin-off that uses a lot of technology that comes out of Roto Architects called Roto Lab which is an innovation studio for cross-sector innovation in architecture and real estate. So today we wanted to talk about technology because we see it as one of the predominant disruptors to why the industry is changing. And we thought Nels had an interesting perspective on this topic to share. I'm hoping that he'll talk about the variety of different ways that architects can use technology both as a tool or as a means to create new service lines for firms that they've actually put to practice. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see to see his take on technology um, and both kind of the simplest ways that firms can innovate around it, as well as some far-reaching ideas that Rotolab is really exploring right now. So my understanding is Roto Architects focuses on the design of buildings. What does Roto Lab focus on? So I, I think I'm going to leave that to Nels to, re- to respond to. I, I, Roto Lab grew out of a certain necessity to, I feel like, play around or even prototype more um, relative to Roto Architects. Roto Architects is also interesting in its itself. Um, Michael Rotundi refers to it as a you know a, a teaching studio. Um, and I hope Nels shares about that as well. But a lot of the work that they do is actually public work. It's not private work. And they do that in collaboration with a lot of organizations. And it was it's through these collaborations that they've actually identified new and unusual ways to apply or reimagine how they apply technology to their practice. What aspects of technology do you see changing in our industry? Well, that's, it's, it's interesting how you pose that question because there's, you know, I think there's a disruptive force coming out from outside of our industry, the, the Kateras of the world, for instance, that we need to keep an eye on or be a part of or integrate. But I also think 
There's even smaller tools that we can use to increase our productivity and our ability to um, to deliver projects. The quickest example would be any new tool a firm adopted to work remotely over the last two months. I, list, I sat in at a CEO forum where an owner of a rather large firm said, you know, if we were to have gone through the usual path, we would have had a task force to talk about remote work, to look at tools, and then two years later, they'd probably still be where they are now. So how do we build in the agility to look at tools that other industries are already using on a regular basis and see, say, how can this help my firm? So I feel like there's smaller things that we might be overlooking because we aren't taking the chance to explore them. And then there's larger opportunities that we're just not seeing because we don't think broadly enough, alternatively. Yeah. And Evelyn, I think you have such a unique perspective on this topic because you're working for a leading tech company that's doing things from an innovation standpoint. And you have access to a lot of things that most architecture firms don't. I'm assuming you can probably see some of the gaps between where an industry like technology is versus an industry like architecture is. I would imagine there are some interesting observations you could make. Yeah, I mean, so a really great simple example of that was I got a laptop my first day, right, of work. So I was completely mobile to begin with. I think people have struggled with that even through the transition. But what people what are really got me excited at a very dorky level was the fact that I didn't have there was several different applications that I didn't have on my laptop, one of them being the Adobe Suite and <laughs> and I was used to like okay, now I'm going to have to build a business case, I'm going to have to send I don't know, send a letter. I'm going to have to have five meetings. I have to make them financial argument. Right. And granted, I work at a technology firm that that's the idea of spending extra money on an additional license. It doesn't weigh as heavily as a smaller medium firm, but I sent in a help desk ticket and literally 10 minutes later, they installed it on my machine. So it just removed a lot of headache and processes that I think we've unnecessarily overlaid in architecture firms that we don't need to spend our time on that, that we don't make money spending time on allocating <laughs> software licenses to people. So how do we, how do we automate that process so we can spend more time where we make more money? And, and, and another thing that we use is this whole idea of a single sign on. SSO, which is widely used, right, in the technology industry, because they can allocate, they can, they can take away and revoke your rights to any system across your computer, like instantly, right? Like if I were to leave my firm tomorrow, they get rid of my single sign on, and I can no longer access any of the software tools as I can today. I think if some IT people in firms today, or if some people that who wear the hat of the the dual the multiple hats that include the IT person in their office, think about like what it takes to decommission a computer or to make sure that they taken back all the access that they've given to employees. Like even that becomes a much larger process. As you're describing your IT team, I'm remembering different scenarios that typically play out in architecture firms around technology. 
including the remote consultant that a firm might work with on a month-to-month basis that usually comes in for emergencies. Or in a few instances, I've seen an architect or designer actually play the dual role as the designated technology person. And they end up being responsible for setting up the computers for new hires and then also having to get drawings done. And then, of course, there's the large firm model where they have a designated technology department which can range from a small team to a large network of people across the firm. And in that case, of course, they have more resources than a small to medium firm. But I find it interesting to think about the ways in which architecture firms are designing the people resources that they're putting around technology. Yeah, that is really interesting. I I mean, yes. And if Nels doesn't touch on that, maybe that's another episode for us in season two. So what do you want to get out of this conversation with Nels? So um, Nels brings a really interesting case study as a practice that is doing different things with technology and looking at how to implement technology differently. And I'll probably say it multiple times throughout this. You know, I, I kind of fed up with the fact that the first words that come to mind when architects think about technology is Revit, CAD, BIM, VR, AI at a very limited scale, by the way, because the applications to AI are so much more tremendous than how architects even think about it. But those are our go-to technology responses. And I feel like we are missing on, on big, we are missing out on bigger and better opportunities, but we're also missing out on small things that can increase our productivity um, and accelerate just our our ability to to do things on a daily basis too. So I'm hoping that he brings to light kind of like a variety of those all those things and and talks a little bit about how firms can consider bringing those technologies in house. So Nels Long is our guest today, and he is a SciArc grad from 2014. And Nels is a designer, strategist, and educator with a passion for projects that seek to improve the world through a relationship between technology and the built environment. As an associate principal at Roto Architects, Nels has worked on projects at numerous scales from single-family homes and commercial spaces to large civic projects and master plans. His approach to practice is the basis for founding Roto Architects Innovation Studio, Roto Lab. Through Roto Lab, Nels has co-founded companies that each focus on a different relationship between architecture, technology, and neuroscience, specifically focusing on learning through virtual experiences, virtual tooling, and social and competitive spaces for virtual experiences and games. That's really interesting. Let's hope he touches on that. I know. It sounds exciting. Let's listen to the interview. It would be great if you could open up the conversation by telling us a little bit about yourself and the type of practice that Roto Architects is. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, guys. I met Michael Rotundi in 2012 when I started at SciArc as a post-professional candidate in the Emerging Systems Technology and Media Program. Um, And Michael was teaching a a course on uh, the role that video games play uh, in in design in you know uh, as a as a new uh, as a new frontier for architects as a new scope of work for designers as a new tool for influencing architectural design and 
through our, I think I took three or four courses from him during that time, we began to outline a possible future for architectural practice that was more based in the startup world, that was more based around projects as opposed to companies and careers. And we focused on uh, a couple technology solutions initially. This was right at the very beginning of virtual reality becoming uh, available commercially. We were still working with the Dev Kit 1 for the Oculus Rift at that point. Um, Vive had not come out yet. And we were, lo- we were building a, a, a program called Second Studio, which grew out of my thesis project at SciArc, which essentially was virtual reality design tools and collaboration software for, for members of architecture, engineering, and construction, um, which is now available open source on GitHub. And I'm sure that these uh, ladies can make that uh, link available at some point. So, so that was really the basis of our, of our, of our collaboration, the, the foundation of our practice together. And, and through that process and through subsequent ventures that we undertook, we began to define an alternative practice for architecture that was more disruptive and began to challenge the norm of what architects are expected to respond to, types of services they're expected to offer, timeframes they're expected to work under, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's um, really where I come from uh, in entering into the conversation today is having spent the better part of the last 10 years developing alternative practice uh, out of our LA office and and now uh, establishing a new presence and a new office in Northern California based out of Sonoma County, looking to take advantage of all of the opportunities that are here uh, and leveraging our, our connections in Los Angeles as well. Great. So tell us a little bit about kind of the evolution, I, I guess, of Roto Architects. And, um, you know, you've said that you didn't work, like you've never really worked in a traditional practice. So how would how would you define Roto Architects now, I guess? It's kind of an inside joke among uh, our 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 team members is that Roto Architects is the traditional firm and Roto Lab is where we do all the fun stuff. And that's, that's not exactly fair because we, we do a lot of fun stuff in, in both. Roto Lab is more focused on technology and on more out-of-the-box solutions. Um, again, kind of following that startup mindset of pursuing individual ventures. Roto Architects has been for the majority of its of its lifetime been a um, a teaching practice uh, a finishing school in a sense for um, young people that are coming out of graduate school um, that are either not ready to start their own firms or or you know it's it's really a, a it's a mentoring space for people like Michael and his his partners and the and my fellow principals and I to get to test out some ideas in the same way that you would in an architectural studio at school. And it's very heavily driven by narrative. It's very heavily driven by storytelling um, and, and really developing a personal connection with the client, um, developing a personal collaboration with the client and all the stakeholders. And, and through that process, we've, uh, we've delivered some pretty amazing, what I would consider traditional projects traditional in the sense that there's a contractor and there's a 
there's a host of consultants and there's a client or two and you know uh, we go through the same project delivery processes as um, as any other firm in the country but we we bias that process towards the conceptual uh, at every step and oftentimes um, sacrifice or assume some additional risk in order to further that mentality. So, so Roto Architects, uh, which was founded in 1991, has always been uh, focused on providing architectural solutions to uh, for for nonprofit organizations, for the underrepresented, for native peoples, and for school districts and organizations that are philanthropic organizations and so forth. We have our large civic projects, we have our large commercial projects, but we our, our sweet spot is really in serving that underrepresented community. So Rotolab was kind of the 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 idea that you and Mike talk uh, Michael talked about kind of incarnate then like playing out in in parallel with Roto architecture. Why did you make the active distinction to make them two different things? Why did you feel that was necessary? Has that been helpful? Has that been hurtful? I think it's it's all of the above and and none of the above. I mean, it's so we still find ourselves in a situation where we are justifying its existence. Like, you know, well, why don't we just do this under the umbrella of Roto Architects? Why do we need a separate entity? And really, the the reason why Roto Lab has persisted as a as a legal entity, as a separate company, not as a department or as a team within Roto Architects, is it has provided it's provided a a legal medium for michael and and my collaboration and the collaboration of other contributors that have have worked on our ventures and so uh, it is in its primary form an equity sharing device that allows for us to develop sweat equity relationships with other contributors whether they're neuroscientists or they are interaction designers or musical instrument designers or composers or, or whatever their domain of expertise is, they are working towards some stake in Roto Lab. And that has really freed us up to get away from a fee-based organization. Ar- architects typically, you know, they, they only do work for fees. And so what we've been exploring and and more so in the last you know three four months or so since the the stay-at-home mandate and pandemic and all that stuff is leveraging other financial uh, devices that are available to us to keep work moving forward even when there's no money and one of those is is um, equity sharing and profit sharing and rotolab being a separate company allows for us to have a partner or a principal type relationship with people that are not licensed in a cross-sector uh, multi-domain setting uh, in a way that an architecture firm could not. So that's, that's become its primary role is really as that um, collaboration device. So, you know, I, I have this, this kind of thing that, that I cringe about, especially being in a, a technology firm that when architects talk about technology, it's usually centered it's very specifically about Revit or BIM or VR and AI in a very limited capacity. 
you know, Nelzi and I have had several conversations on kind of how architects should be leveraging technology further. So from from kind of a, even a basic standpoint of, of you know, you were talking about Jira and other um, Zoho and other forms of technology. What, what do you think architects should be investigating more these days in terms of techno like technological applications to their practice? I think the kind of the holy grail um, in technology for the design fields at this point is unlocking the power of the gig economy in a way that the software industry has. Um, the gig economy being rideshare drivers, software programmers, people that can, uh, as free agents, contribute to uh, some product or some service uh, on a case-by-case basis, on a project basis, on a, on a time basis, without becoming uh, a long-term dependent upon that company and that company's financial resources. And that is, you know, that's largely beneficial to both parties, to the, to the company that, that the work is, is being done through and to the, the free agent. Um, it gives them a lot of freedom. And oftentimes free agents, you know, they make a lot more money because uh, they're not tied to the success of one firm or another. They're, they're able to negotiate their own rates. And there's been a number of products that have um, attempted to do this. There's a paper that came out of Stanford two years ago that was looking at gig economy for, for design professions. The, the problem with design professions is unlike uh, programming or, or Uber driving is that it's, it, it really requires a robust institutional knowledge um, of that firm, of that firm's style, of, of the people that they're working with, of the client, of the jurisdiction. And so solutions that have been proposed to, to create networks of, of project-based employees as opposed to companies that take on multiple projects, companies of people that take on multiple projects, require almost like a almost like a film production company this level of commitment this level of uh, research and subscription to the institutional um, uh, approach to aesthetics and 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 community values and things like that and so so i think that's really the that's that's really the direction that everyone is working towards, whether they they honestly know it or not. I mean, I, I know you just mentioned you don't really want to talk about Revit, but I think that's one of the things that Autodesk is is really striving for through Autodesk 360, BIM 360, whatever it's called, the the cloud-based BIM, the ability for um, uh, multinational integrated project delivery teams that, that include stakeholders uh, and contractors and subcontractors and everybody working as one, um, the ability to share building information models across the cloud and, and, and having people contribute in their area of expertise uh, without needing necessarily to understand uh, and comprehend the project as a whole. I mean, that's that's one of the tools that is going to facilitate a, a more uh, decentralized workforce within the architectural community. I think what is very ironic about that, however, uh, is that the, the tool that allows for that type of production to happen is most often cost prohibitive to the people who could benefit from it the most. Um, there's been a number of, of um, ventures, projects, uh, proposals that have come before us um, that look at um, ways in which uh, 
groups of, of people can, in essence, unionize to, to create a, a union of, of uh, designers, a union of architects, um, and, and share technological resources, share Revit libraries, share company benefits, health benefits, and whatnot that they aren't getting because they aren't a member of a firm. And in, in some ways, starting to get some of the benefits of the people that are working production companies for, for film and, and whatnot within the architecture community. I think that's going to be really interesting. And that's a, it's a whole new uh, frontier of, of architectural technology that hasn't really been explored yet is the, the human condition and the ability to, to, to level up on uh, the way that our teams are decentralized. We haven't spoken yet. I assume it's going to come up at some point about the effects of working from home um, the effects of COVID-19 on the architectural profession, the architectural uh, business community. But we're, we're seeing uh, a lot of firms kind of meeting people halfway in this regard and saying, well, you want, you know, you want to be able to live where you want to live and spend time with your family and, you know, have all the benefits of a gig worker while still being a member of a professional organization. And a lot of firms, my firm included, has agreed that that's the the best course for its employees. I mean, uh, once this lifts, we don't have mandatory office hours any longer. As as long as your work is getting done, uh, it doesn't matter where you are. There needs to be some face-to-face time. We've mandated a certain amount of face-to-face time just because it's imperative for, for collaboration that you have some physical interaction. Uh, which I think we're all experiencing the lack of today, you know, so I think there's a, a huge foundation that's being developed towards empowering the, the architectural gig economy just as kind of a test case through this stay at home mandate. Yeah. So there's a, there, there's a lot of things to unpack there. I think um, one of my questions, because this, the title of this going in was actually kind of risk and technology. And I feel like what you are talking about, means that, I, I mean, architects have been historically known to not want to share anything, right? So how does that really, or where do we need to take our mindset to kind of open up a project to the get like a project to the gig economy? And how do we change that mindset? Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on on that, but kind of this whole, the risk adverse, I, I mean, I, I think is like, relative to getting sued but it for me it's his, historically it's been interesting to see how little firms actually tell their employees let alone like how much they're going to be willing to share um so that more people can be interactive on a model yeah i think it's a great point there's there's been a an extreme amount of mistrust and i think a huge portion of it is a is a generational problem for for whatever reason, preceding generations have an inherent mistrust for the ones that come after. And with the, I don't know any other way to say it, so I'm just going to come out and say it, uh, with the ego situation that we have in the architectural community, I feel like that's only amplified. What we've experienced through our practice, which we do define as a teaching practice, which we, we do define as a collaborative practice, is that there is a huge amount of trust that is gained both within the organization and without by opening up those barriers and 
being more transparent across across the process. Uh, obviously, we have some pr uh, protocols in place in order to protect ourselves from a legal standpoint. However, more often than not, our initial action upon receiving a request for a proposal is to look for another architecture firm that's either local to the project or that shares some expertise in that particular scope and, and reach out and request uh, a partnership for that project. And so there, the, the, the vast majority of the projects that we do, we do either through joint venture or through partnership with another architect. And that is partly how we are able to continue to provide innovative designs and solutions to some extremely complex problems. And I think the more that architecture as a profession gets away from the concept of I, the architect, and more towards the, the understanding of us as the architectural community and, and begins to take advantage of some of these technological platforms that, that we've mentioned, like Zoho Projects or, or Jira or some of these other collaboration platforms that were originally intended for, for, for app development, but which can be ported over to architectural design very easily, starting to look at how we have a single informational resource that combines our in-house team, all of our consulting teams, our partner architect teams, our contractor, our client, and all the various stakeholders where there are tasks assigned to each one and there are dependencies assigned to each task and everyone understands everyone's role. We, we start to get to a point where sharing knowledge is, is, is gaining power and influence. And as architects, our role in the project process is as much control and the flow of information as as delivering a final design and and by sharing more I, in our experience anyway we've had more uh more control over that final product yeah and i never actually thought about this until you mentioned it but how much of a cultural shift kind of the adoption of all these new technologies is going to fully require. I mean, it's it's one thing for us to be entirely remote right now, you know, and, and talk about what that does to culture, but kind of the underlying shifts in terms of, you know, just the amount of ownership we want over anything or the responsibilities that we're willing to give to other team members, I think is, is going to be interesting, but necessary to, to make use of these technology, like technology developments. Protolab was exploring a, um, a venture uh, with uh, a couple partners a few years back uh, for a kind of following this idea of a, a union of architectural designers as an online network that at its very core was based off of a transition away from the firm receiving credit for a project to the contributors receiving credit for a project. And so in the same way, when you go onto IMDb, uh, the internet movie database, and you, you look up, oh, someone give me an example movie, um, the beautiful day in the neighborhood, the Mr. Rogers movie, right? And then it, it shows all of the, it shows all of the, the people who the contributed, credits. all the, right. all the credits, the, you know, the, the stars, Tom Hanks and the various people that were that were in it, all the way down to the people who the grip, were lighting, right. the lighting and the sound and the editing and and, and et cetera. 
And then if you click on, let's, let's say that you go down to the, the key grip, right? And you click on his or her name. It's going to give you a whole list of movies that they were involved in. And there's no shame in sharing credit to, with everybody that's involved. Everybody that, when, when a movie gets an Oscar, everybody on that movie team gets an Oscar for their respective role. And we don't do that in architecture. And so this, this platform, uh, it was called Party With Us. Um, I was developing that with um, Elizabeth Wendell and Aaron Gensler out of LA. Um, it's still something that's kind of on the back burner, but we've, we've all become busy with other things. The, the premise for that was developing a, an online, an internet architecture database, in the same way that we have an internet movie database, where you could click on your favorite project and you could see your, the entire project team that contributed to it and who they're working for at the time and who they're working for now and if they're available or not. And you could theoretically contact one of those people. Like, let's say the project manager was working for this other firm at the time, but now they have their own firm. You can contact them and say, hey, I love what you did there. Can you do something like that for me? You know, and it's just that subtle shift away from hoarding all the credit to the firm to distributing the credit to the, to the team. It's, it's a subtle shift. It's, it's, a, it's a sea change institutionally from an architectural um, professional standpoint, from practice standpoint, but from a theoretical standpoint, it's it's just a switch. It's just a little flip of a switch, and doing that has huge implications in the in the way that people interact with the architectural community or the architectural profession, in the way that projects are acquired and work is shared, and honestly, the the more that you give back to the community the more that you yourself receive. Uh, and, and we've experienced that in, you know, in our practice. Um, and, and it's one of the things that we are interested in, in looking towards both from a technological standpoint, from a business standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from a legal standpoint. You know, like we have people on our team that represent each of those different categories. And we're kind of exploring each of these things that we're discussing from each, each of those perspectives. I really want to... Um follow up on that, because I think there's a lot of really great things that you pointed out in that, not only the generational shift, but um, I always think about like when I was working on projects and I'm in the Revit model, there's a whole team of us. And we're, you know, if you think about it in firms across the country, people are clicking in the models of these firms thousands of times a day. And they're, they're completely integrated into the technology of the project. And this shift of, I to we empowering the team has such an immediate impact back to the individuals who are helping to support the project development. Um, so I agree. I think that there's a huge opportunity and it's a cultural shift, not only in the technology, the leadership and the firm business model that has huge results that it could yield. I think the, the democratization of information and the increased accessibility of technology within the architectural community specifically, but more generally, uh, is the, the number one thing that is going to contribute to a future of abundance as, as human beings. One of the projects that we're currently working on, which, which Evelyn knows uh, quite a lot about, is, is called Affinity Space. And it's named from 
the work done by uh, Dr. James G, uh, formerly of Arizona State University, where he was looking at the forums and wiki spaces surrounding video games as affinity spaces, as third spaces for exploring the various uh, experiences that happen within games and the various solutions to the challenges that games provide. Yeah. So before you go on, just because I don't think our listeners fully understand what you're talking about, let's break it down a little bit for them. This notion that there are entire like wiki fan encyclopedias, I don't even know, fanatopias dedicated to video games and communities around them about like how you get like how you get secret objects. I don't know, Nels, if you want to dive a little bit. Let me make it a little bit more accessible. Yes, thank you. (laughs) If your hobby is remote controlled airplanes, there is a, a community of people online that can tell you everything about remote control airplanes, about how to build them, about how to fly them, about where you can fly them, about the local laws and jurisdictions and the varying materials that you need to, to, to investigate based on your climate and your, your, your wind situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's another example of an affinity space. Um, this uh, Dr. G was focusing on affinity spaces within games, but what he uncovered are affinity spaces across the board in in every sector of of information in every sector of practice uh, both professionally and and not and so what we have begun to develop is uh, in essence an index of those various affinity spaces where members from one domain or one knowledge set um, have the ability to share information with members of another domain or knowledge set around epic challenges, key issues, uh, invisible problems that are affecting people today. Uh, it's at affinityspace.com. And what we are, are hoping to develop is a grassroots community that is focused on leveraging the collaborative nature of architecture and design to tackle some of the key challenges that are facing the world today from a cross-sector standpoint with domain experts acting as moderators that we've recruited to to be part of it. And so some of the stuff that that we're talking about here, this idea of this this shift from I to we, is really at the heart of of all of the work that that we're doing. And, And this sea change away from the Starkitect to or or the architect as the sole proprietor the the sole uh, authoritarian person who has the the best interests of the project at heart to the architect as the social collaborator the architect as the person who who brings people together the 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 um the one that supports collaboration the one that's that um designs teams the one that you know, is the max, the matchmaker and the networker, you know, and I think that that is a 21st century vision for, for architects. And and we're starting to see the, the term architect get used in other industries as well. There, you know, obviously there are software architects and there are social architects and there are policy architects and so forth. And, and part of the reason why is that term is just so 
applicable to so many different realms where there are multiple stakeholders involved and multiple domain experts involved and you have to work with each of them to to come to a solution that everyone is more or less happy with and trying to say that one person is capable of that when there's an army of people that are that are that are contributing to that effort i feel like it's an inevitable change um and so yeah through through our work we're trying to to further that that position now affinity space and even the party with us i think is a you know, two different methods of future applications of technology that actually changes. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say cultural revolution, but definitely requires kind of a, a cultural re- revolution to kind of see su- some success. You know, what other applications in terms of technology in the future have you seen? Or, you know, how else are you using are you approaching future applications of technology and what role do architects, you know, can architects play in that today or, or should be playing it in it tomorrow? I think there's kind of two questions there. So let me see if I'm understanding you properly and I can kind of go down one or yeah, the other. Yeah, I was kind of stumbling. So please you know, feel free. <laughs> so one thing that I heard was what are other applications of an architectural skill set. And just to respond to that very quickly, some of my students and a lot of my peers that graduated from SciArc are not architects. They are working for production designers. They're working in film. They're working in theater. They're working in game design, level design, virtual experience, environments design, um, user experience design, interaction design, etc. And I think what we are seeing in a large way is the whole scale application of an architectural education to non-professional applications. And they're still architects. They still have that iterative design background. They still have that sense of space and that sense of proportion and that sense of, of narrative and so on and so forth. But for, for whatever reason, they're, they're choosing to apply that to something other than the built environment. And as the virtual world continues to grow, uh, we will see more and more of that. Um, There are today architects um, that develop virtual projects for players of the game called Second Life, uh, which uh, some of you may be familiar with, which is, and basically just a a virtual universe where you have an avatar and you can make friends and you can go to work and you can kind of do whatever it is that you want to do in the real world, in the virtual world. And some people call it escapism and some people call it fantasy and, and, and whatnot. But nonetheless, it has a massive subscription base. And in order to play at certain levels, you have to lease space or buy land um, and you have to build a house and you have to, and in order to, to build a house, you have to hire someone to model that for you, which is usually done in the mesh modeler like Blender or Maya or 3ds Max on a computer in a physical room somewhere. And then it's sent virtually to that person and it's uploaded. And there are virtual architects that are developing virtual projects for virtual environments for virtual users. Um, what one of the things that we've been been looking at um, because we're just also tired of of staring at our own faces in Zoom over the past three months or so is how do we start to leverage 
leverage some of those virtual environments from a educational standpoint, from a professional standpoint. Uh, and we're actually going to be teaching um, a, an iteration of our design studio that we call Gamer Lab at SciArc and ASU this fall and next spring, where we are teaching an entire studio inside of an online multiplayer game where um, we're not using Zoom, we're not meeting in person, there is no physical studio. We have are in the process of developing a virtual site, um, which will be shared. Um, being a virtual site, we haven't decided yet, but we think we're going to play with gravity a little bit. We think we're going to play with slope a little bit. I think we're going to play with some of the, the, the physical constraints uh, that architecture is usually concerned with. And we're going to um, have uh, about 28 students um, coming up to coming up with virtual solutions for a virtual site, which will be critiqued in a first-person virtual environment within a game setting, um, and we're going to um, send uh, invitations to that game environment to specialists from all over the world to walk through and and you know play the environment and and really look and see how we can leverage the existing technology within video games to provide a collaborative review uh, space for both. Uh, we're starting looking just at schools, um, again, SciArc and, and ASU, but also looking beyond that uh, to see how some of that technology can be ported over into our professional space as well. That's super interesting. The first thing that comes to mind is then, like, my, my least favorite experience was always building that shared site model that all of your other models had to fit into. <laughs> so taking that out of studio... <laughs> So you were the you were the one person that ended up building the whole thing by yourself while everyone ran off and did whatever they wanted to do. It sounds like it seems like there was always one of those people that that ended up building the site model for everyone. Well, I don't I don't know. I think my colleagues might disagree with you on that one. I'll try to avoid it as much as I could. But just the fact that like I'm like how did, why did you you know make the base so that I have to like put a a 20 foot pedestal on my model just so I can anyways. What are, so you guys, I think, I mean, my description of what's going on at Roto Architects and Roto Lab and even kind of your, what you just described as a virtual studio, I think is kind of cutting edge and like very forward thinking, um, which is not unexpected coming out of schools like SciArc. It's exciting to see ASU get on board too. What would you, like, what would be some of kind of pairing it back for our listeners like the the people, the individuals in, you know, large firms or small shops that, you know, just really struggled with making this remote transition, you know, what are ways that you you think firm owners can begin to test out new technology and think about new techno technological applications to their practice? You know, the vast majority of the stuff that we're talking about is either free or cheap. And while I'm not an advocate for design competitions, I feel like design competitions in a large part are kind of a brute force solution to something that is more delicate. But I do believe in the power of sprints. And this is something, Evelyn, that, that you mentioned uh, earlier. I can't remember if we were recording yet or not. And most of this technology that is not available on a free basis is available on a free basis for a short period of time. And I think 
that for our firm's own health and success, it's important that we continue to innovate in small, short bursts, allowing time for people to understand the impact of that, how we integrate it into our current workflow, um, how uh, our current clients and, and customers are impacted by that and how it unlocks the potential for new clientele. So, you know, establishing a workplace culture that supports innovation sprints, that it supports exploring new types of technology and new ways of working or no more or new uh, theories around professional practice or pedagogy and I use the word pedagogy in a professional setting. We, we talk about uh, protocols and, and procedures and best practices as curriculum because it's the type of practice that we run. So trying something out for a short period of time, almost like a charrette in a studio. Give your team a theoretical project that maybe is a research project that can feed into a real project. That'd be best case scenario. But if that doesn't exist, then then simply looking at um, you know, creating something that maybe the maybe the team votes on. Hey, we'd be interested in designing a shelter for the moon, or a habitat for Mars, or something that is is far enough afield that it has some entertainment value to it. And then using some new technology to explore that. If it's a new visualization technique, if it's a new collaboration technique, if it's a new project management technique. Um, and, and, and even don't be afraid to bring the business model into this conversation and say, you know, we'd like to explore a, a, an equity role in a project. Well, we're not going to do that on a project that's going to bring in a million dollars and pay staff, you know, for six months or whatever. We're going to do that. You know, we need something small. What's you know, is there a, um, is there a nonprofit in the area or is there a restaurant that needs a rehab or is there, is there something that I can explore a new business practice, a new technological practice or a new professional practice in a limited capacity for a set period of time that doesn't put my, the future of my company at risk. And, and that's, I mean, that's why we have to, to get back to your, your initial question, Evelyn, that's, that's why we have Rotolab. So we, when we discover projects inside of Roto Architects that we want to take a risk on, we shop it out to Roto Lab, and Roto Lab spins up a team to to put together a solution for it. And if it becomes a long-term project, then it it gets folded back under Roto Architects. And if it if it doesn't manifest into something, then it gets added to our catalog of beautiful failures you know but there's but there's no harm no foul there's no there's nothing lost other than really just the time of a of a, a dozen or so people depending on the size and scope of the project because like i said most of the time what we're doing is free and really trying to to learn in the free spaces as much as possible yeah i mean i think the important thing there is you're talking essentially about doing mini prototypes even right um in, in, a, in a sense, and in, in well, consistently, right? But building that into a cultural framework. I, I mean, when I was talking about innovation sprints, I was talking about literally just kind of getting out of your headspace for a day or two. Um, it, it's interesting, like, 
as as an application to technology, like taking that opportunity to really test out um, technology in in a more robust way, not just a, hey, we're going to run this in parallel, try it out, tell me which one you like better than the other, which never really seems to work out successfully. You came out of SciArc kind of working with Michael Rotundi and this idea of Rotolab. What advice would you give to other architects? You've kind of dropped the bomb on where you think architecture needs to be headed. You know, what what is the small, what is the low-hanging fruit? And then, like, where do where do architects really need to stretch, I guess, if that makes sense? If, if there was one, one leave behind, it would be... In, you know, individually and as an organization, seek to identify the low-hanging fruit in your region, in your market, in your practice, and establish some schedule, some goal to develop a, a, a realistic response to that. We've identified a market here for starter homes under $100,000 that we are working on a solution for. I can just about guarantee my firm 10 projects over the next six months if we can partner with enough contractors in enough areas to, del- to deliver starter homes you know, for under, under 100000 That's a big ask in California. I believe that it can be done. There's huge demand for it. Everything from ADUs to you know, Airbnb, et cetera, et cetera. So Identify that low-hanging fruit. Identify that low-hanging fruit in your in your clientele, in your market uh, area, in your you know in your practice, and and really work to exhaust that that opportunity and make sure that make sure that you have tried to deliver an out-of-the-box solution for that highly accessible opportunity before moving on to the next opportunity, especially if that next opportunity is a traditional opportunity. Innovation is started in the dry times, <laughs> in the times where we're all kind of fighting for survival. And as soon as those first rains come in, innovation is forgotten. And we all go back to the, the way that we were doing things before. And I, I, I think that um, we, as a, as a profession, as a community, need to make a commitment to innovation and to finishing our innovation sprints rather than setting them aside as soon as we get a project and we've got some pay coming in for a little while. So, so yeah, I would, I mean, you, you said it before I could, Evelyn, identify that low hanging fruit. And, and as a, as a designer and as a, a conceptual developer, take a stab at it. And, and who knows, you know, it might be the next, the next thing that we're all talking about. You guys think really differently than most architects I know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, do you know what drove you to think so, so different? I mean, do you know what drove you to think, think the way you do and, and still love architecture? Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to, uh, estrange some of your listeners with this comment however though i i was um, that's okay it's only episode three (laughs) (laughs) i was homeschooled until ninth grade um i was raised and educated by my parents 
my father, who is a ceramic artist uh, and a 3D design professor, and my mother, who, besides just being an amazing full-time mom, um, is also a, a writer, a storyteller, cook, um, and she still is all those things. I don't know why I'm saying it in the past tense. And for the first 13, 14 years of my life, every aspect of my life was out of the box. And I was forced to not well, forced to, to develop my own uh, approach to everything and my own position on everything and my own process for achieving everything. And then when I got into architecture school, it was like a perfect fit because it went from one process driven pedagogical framework to another. And I was like, Oh, this is just like what I was doing before, except the, the scales, you know, the, the scope is, is magnified. And instead of just looking at, you know, cause, cause we use what is now called phenomenon based learning, which is where every aspect of learning is based on a story so Finland, for example, which is the one that is really pioneering this, in their national education system, everything is based around the narrative of climate change. And so in your math, math class, you're, you know, you're learning formulas that have something to do with the environment. In your physical science class, you're learning about climate change. In your English, well, you know, your language courses, you're, you're exploring narrative or, or linguistic responses to the the issue of climate change and such. So everything is oriented around that as a central theme. And that's how we, that's, that's how my, my mother ran our, our homeschool program is everything was based around a theme and she wrote those themes and they were incredibly uh, involved. And then to get into architecture school, it was just like building upon that theme where it, it was, fiction and it was form and it was space and it was program and it was physics and it was all of the technology and all of these different things layered on. And I, so I just, I found an environment in which I could flourish and I've been incredibly lucky in that way. And, and I, if, if I were to speak for Michael, which I, I think he would be okay with, I think he would have a very similar response being one of, if not the youngest, uh, in a large Italian family, um, I think he found himself on his own quite a lot and was forced to come up with creative solutions to uh, environmental uh, situations. And, and so we, we both have a very kind of similar background in that we are both autodidacts, that we both have had a, a huge hand in developing our own education systems um, to the extent that he, you know, co-created SciArc and that whole education system. And when I say that Roto Architects is a teaching practice, that's really at the basis of our, of all the work that we do is it's about furthering ourselves through learning, through practice, through iteration with the problem. And, and that's at the basis for all of what we're doing. Nels, I think this was a very interesting conversation. I think you brought up so many really interesting points that are worth, I don't know, I think they will go through the series and hopefully um, relate. And we're really glad that you centered technology around culture. That was a very interesting, unexpected outcome for us. But we really appreciate that because it was, um, I think it's really directly tied to this larger theme of why practice is changing. Yeah, it's all, 
it's all part of the informa or the the information web, the knowledge web, and and um, we are just part of a, a global system. And where culture or society tugs at one string, technology pulls on another. And um, to to think that there's a technological answer without a cultural response, I, I don't subscribe to that belief. So everything is intertwined. Um, everything is important and everything is dependent on itself. And I think as architects, we are uniquely positioned to take that view of the world and, and hopefully apply some of our skills and understanding to some problems that are maybe outside of architecture. Society's got a lot of them right now and um, not a lot of people stepping up to, to fill the gaps. So, Janine, I know this episode turn it, took an interesting turn for you. I, I, what questions? <laughs> I have a lot of questions. And frankly, even going into it, I think what is most interesting to me is that we both had different perceptions about what the outcome of this conversation was going to be. Right. I remember in the early conversations of even just reaching out to Nels, I was saying, I really want to talk to him about the pivotal point of how technology changed practice and then step into where we are now with the second wave of how technology is changing the way we work. And now, after participating in the interview and understanding your and Nels's perception about this topic, I realize that I'm thinking about technology in this very narrow way. The, the way you guys are describing it is much broader. I would just be interested in getting a little bit of help to further understand the stepping stones of where this conversation came from and where you were hoping it would land. Because while it was interesting to me, and I took a lot away from the discussion, it's just a different angle than I was imagining. So I'm super curious what you're thinking. Right. And I and I don't, like, I, I hope that our listeners did get a little bit out of that so an observation that I have is that whenever architects talk about technology and practice, it goes straight to Revit, CAD, to VR, and AI in the simplest sense of usage of those tools. Don't get me wrong. There's definitely some firms doing some really interesting things in VR, but, but the generic discussion around VR and architecture to me is kind of, is kind of boring. Other industries have have moved on to VR in a in a very higher level, and I also think we're missing a broader technology discussion. And some of the interesting things that Nels began to touch on, but didn't fully dive deep in, is just you know how how Roto Lab is looking at technology to have a better client management, like a client management system. How Roto Lab is using technology to productize some of the work that they're doing for other clients by actually bringing software to market. You know, how Rotolab is using technology to find efficiencies and deliver new value in whole new ways, right? I mean, he was talking about the ASU SciArc Studio being completely in a virtual space, which was the first time that I heard about it. But if you think about a lot of architecture schools and what they're facing in the coming semester of being totally virtual and having to make that decision. There are schools out there like the BSA that are that have a whole degree that is delivered virtually. But the idea that they've actually created this 
this learning environment that you can step into in a way that we can't do on a Zoom call you know, or even a collaborative whiteboard is taking it to another level for me, um, which is where I would like architecture to talk about. Like, I feel like that should be the starting point for where our profession engages with technology, if that makes sense. Like, how how do we push it further rather than than being the, the people that are just purely trying to adopt all of the SaaS software that is current, right? Rather than being the firms that are purely struggling to whether or not I keep Revit on the server <laughs> or whether I move to cloud. Those are not the innovative conversations that I want to have when we're talking about the future of technology and practice. Sure. No, I get that. And I think the classroom example is very relevant. And I can especially see that if they had a class in studio when I was in school like that, I I know a lot of people who would have taken it. And I can also see my nephew, who is going to be graduating high school soon and loves gaming, he would be really into that for sure. But if I flip it and I start to think about this as the firm owner or someone who's further along in practice, I guess what I want to know is what lessons are they going to take away from this conversation in terms of adopting or considering something in practice? And I know Nell's made some recommendations about how he felt about that, but I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting to me about the whole conversation is that we we started to talk less about technology and more about firm culture, right? And it goes back to this ability to create a culture where you're not afraid to test new things, but do it on a regular basis so it doesn't become a special event too, right? So that it that it literally becomes a part of the culture. So technology, I think the growth of technology and the way technology is changing is at this new and incredible pace. And that pace is only going to continue to accelerate into the future. So really, how do we create a culture that does a quick scan of everything that's out there and then pull a few ideas out from that scan and test like, is, is there applications here in our firm that we can use to accelerate something that we're already doing, um, to take something that we're doing and turn it into something that we can sell as something else or like create a new product. Not that they would productize necessarily their classroom, but, but you could see how they could take this idea of a classroom and then go around and sell it to other universities, right? As, as another studio space. So how do you then take that idea and productize it? Or how do you even just create something entirely new on the backbone of technology. Um, well, the idea of that space, even being space you could sell within, is pretty amazing to think about. And he mentions that also in the interview, that this is another realm that exists to design, to create, and to earn money. Oh, yeah. So he was talking about this virtual gaming site. But if you think about, there's a lot of e-commerce happening, even in a game like Animal Crossings right? Where people are playing in real money for a virtual product. 
I admit I've played mobile games where I pay real money to get fake money in the game so I can buy something, whether that's additional time or um, furniture for your place, a furniture, even like fur- right, furniture for your place. And that happens at a lot of different in a lot of different games, not just the game he mentioned. But you could be the game developer on one end that's designing that piece of furniture that, you know, is only available on a limited basis and there's only various different ways that you can get it. I mean, he was mentioning this whole idea of this e-commerce space, which architects can play in, which is which is really interesting to me. That's the first time I've actually heard that specific platform brought up in a while, but people were definitely making large large amount of money selling virtual real estate at one point. There's definitely documentation of that. I can't remember which game, but I feel like it was like Minecraft was one of them. And, right. Uh, and yeah, Minecraft is a ki- Minecraft is a game that I've downloaded for my four-year-old too. So like, <laughs> so it, it's not, they're not very intricate designs necessarily either. So to walk it back, I, I think now we've gone in, like one extreme of talking about virtual reality. But I also want to come back to the idea that we have architects who are in the process of, you know, building fabrication labs. And when I left school, that was a new emerging trend. And since I've been out in practice, I've seen a lot of firms step up to purchase and invest in that type of technology and support creating fabrication shops in their studio. So between virtual reality and fabrication shops, What's the in-between in terms of technology? There's a very unique crossover and there's a very unique case study, and we might want to even consider them for a future episode. But Rios Clemente Hale in Los Angeles, California, uh, has a two-story building. And on top of the building, they have their typical architecture studio. And on the bottom, at least when I was last there, I don't know if this has changed at all, they've actually created a storefront. And a lot of what they have in their storefront, it reminds me of a museum store, but some of those artifacts are artifacts that came from their own design. So they took a textile or a pattern that they developed for the Disney concert hall, for instance, and reimagined that as a textile and then sold the pattern in a form of, of a household good at a variety of different scales. There's a lot of architects doing a lot of different things with 3D fabrication that are really small and intricate, but they're also doing 3D fabrication at the the building model level scale. I also came across this YouTube of these two DIYers, but they're making a lot of money because they took their fabrication shop, which is a combination of a CNC machine and a 3D printer, and they casted concrete coasters that they were able to sell on West Elm. And that's become an entire new line of revenue. But um, I, I don't know. I think there's different uses of technology. And I, I think sometimes in, in looking at the complexities of everything that that technology is can deliver, we also kind of miss out on on what could be a very simple opportunity to to create another stream of revenue in our services. The thing I'm hearing from this conversation is thinking about technologies at different scales because it breaks beyond just computer software 
And there's a lot of different facets in which you can think about technology showing up in and around an architecture firm. And there's also a lot of potential. So I guess just to step into our call to action for our listeners of what they should think about getting out of this episode, I think that we both agree that it's important for firms to take a step towards assessing if they have an agile culture that's willing to support integration of new technologies and at what levels are they thinking about that in practice because it's no longer good enough to not be thinking about it at all. Yeah, I think it's to create the space to allow this type of thinking to emerge and technology again is the driver of that because technology is changing. So in order for us to keep pace of technology and play in that field, how do we create the space to fully embrace it and figure out different avenues that our firms can capitalize on the technology? And not every idea is going to be a winning idea. I think we have to acknowledge that too. But you can but you aren't going to get to that winning idea until you, you know, one of the sayings that you learn in business school is fail often and fail fast. So how do we change the culture of architecture firms to be able to do that at a smaller level by like by not subjecting our multi-million dollar projects to that, but by taking little instances, micro risks, testing new ideas on a regular basis to continue to push how we apply technology to practice and in turn grow grow and evolve the practice on a regular basis too. I mean, for me, for me, that was the biggest unique thing that came out of it. Um, Successful integration of technology is not purely the integration of technology itself. It's about creating the culture that allows, allows for that to happen. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. And maybe we should start to talk about some of the lessons that firm owners and leaders can apply. Yeah, so I think if they're, you know, I think one of the things is if you're afraid of kind of dipping your toe into it, maybe start by making it a special event. And then as you have these events more often, it becomes less special, but it becomes really a part of the culture. So I talk about doing one or two day innovation sprints, if that's too much you know, make it a half day innovation sprint, but take the opportunity, and it doesn't have to be technology focused. If you build this type of ideating and recreating and rethinking into your practice, then the adaptation of making changes to your technology stack is a lot easier. So like, how do you do, like, like you said, micro risks, a, a lot of different skills, How do you integrate like the idea of a mini charrette and kind of build that into your culture, build, you know, design a better way to create a jack-o'-lantern, like make any holiday event kind of another idea to kind of way to test new things about how your firm collaborates and how your firm expands upon making and doing and designing. I can certainly see it from a marketing standpoint. Also, as an administrative function of the firm, I oftentimes found that there was a little bit of pushback on the idea of exploring new ways to improve marketing to meet the demand that we were up against. From a technology perspective, there is a ton of potential around marketing, not just in application, but also in processes and the broader sense of technology. Um, You know, I think the idea of micro risks and there's definitely potential for growth within marketing and technology in my opinion. 
when you intentionally invest in marketing growth, it leads to revenue. Right. And even in marketing, though, I think there's an opportunity to firm, for firms to figure out what their technology stack is there, right? So CMSs, CMS solutions are is a term that gets thrown out maybe at larger firms, but small and medium firms don't often think about their client management system. But there's a lot of CMS offerings for small firms or even even the sole proprietor out there that want to, you know, we always say architecture is about relationships, but really CMS systems that are are have built in AI that looks at your interactions with individuals and kind of reminds you when you need to get back in touch with them to to keep them alive. I guess from a marketing standpoint and thinking about micro risk, um, marketing has a ton of potential to gain and it doesn't affect the project. It doesn't affect the deliverable to the client and it directly is tied to gaining revenue. So for me, the risk is moderate compared to the reward potential. All right. But we don't ever talk about that, right? The first thing we talk about from a technology standpoint is never Excel and the limited use of Excel. <laughs> Maybe because it's not interesting, but from an operation standpoint, I feel like we are definitely missing um, missing out on larger on larger opportunities um, from from other software as a service companies that are coming out. Yeah, there is a huge market there and a lot of different offerings to explore. I know that the potential is tremendous because it's about creating efficiencies and increasing that client interaction and communication piece, which is very valuable. Yeah. So I think that's that's a small way. Like, like so look at even productivity tools. Like don't even put architecture in the Google search bar. There's some architects doing some interesting things with smart sheets that are, are adapting it to their use. This is all very low risk, again, um, low monthly cost to try out. A lot of them with some of them with 30, 60, 90 day free if, if you get on a phone call with them, but definitely at least a seven day kind of free test drive of the product itself um, to see if it, it could work within your ecosystem and figure out at a very small level, how do you how do you figure out a way to deliver your invoices better? I mean... And continue to do that and continue to iterate it until you found that you look back and you've really changed the way your entire practice engages and uses technology to get the work done. It's about changing the culture to both identify these things and create continual change. We have to create a culture that's okay with continual change to keep up with the technology applications that are out there. And and also to understand where we might have competition, right? I've seen, even in my Instagram feed, made I don't know if you've seen made renovations, but there's a lot more of these um, build tech firms coming up. If you look at their websites under jobs, they're looking more for front-end front end engineers than they are for architects. But essentially, they're delivering virtual designs of bathrooms. They're getting them permitted and they're getting them built at a song kind of all-in-one delivery, and they're doing it without licensed architects. So there's that too. I guess the biggest takeaway is under, understand the technology landscape and find ways to use it to your advantage whenever possible. 
To conclude, I just want to point out a couple of key ideas. One, we all know that technology is a rapidly changing landscape. And I think that's part of the ongoing challenge. This is no longer something that you can just adopt at one point in time in your practice and then think the conversation's done. Rather, this is a conversation you have to revisit and pay attention to on an ongoing basis. Technology, and especially change, is the new norm. And so for design leaders, I think the key is looking internally at the culture of your organization and just evaluating our are these kind of conversations about change something that you're anticipating or resisting? And knowing that about your firm culture, are you allowing those conversations to happen so that you can stay relevant over time? Or are you really resistant to those conversations and preventing your firm to adapt? Yeah, I think only then will we begin to be more relevant. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practicedisrupted.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can learn more about other podcasts in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more content like this, you can help us by leaving a rating, review, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing about. Thanks for listening and see you next week.